of the earth. Listen to the warning the seer he said. Beware the storm that gathers here. Listen to the wise man. Yes, I'm back. And today, I think, therefore I am, (laughs) I think this is going to be a long episode. I think this is going to be one of those that rivals upcoming episodes for, let's say, bow rap or other surprisingly lengthy dives I've done, like Liar. I think that one was more than 25 minutes long, which I guess a lot. You know what? I'm just, (laughs) I'm rambling. I am in a much better mood. It's been a rough week or two, but I am back. I'm super excited because today it is all epic queen deep dive number 42, track number eight on Queen's marvelous, magnificent A Night at the Opera. This song kicks off side two, kicks it off with an amazing atmosphere an epicness, something very historic and deep and ancient about it. We're going to talk all about it, ladies and gentlemen. This is Brian May's startlingly awesome composition, one of Queen's best, The Prophet's Song. I always used to think of it as just The Prophet Song, but that doesn't make any, doesn't make any sense, really, does it? But this is the prophet's song, and this has so much interesting backstory about the way it was written and why it was written and what Brian wanted to do with this and the vocal performance and the different movements that it has. This sways between all kinds of emotion and sonic soundscapes. I love the word soundscape. I think the first time I really thought about that word when I was reading a lot of interviews from Bjork, but I love it. This is fantastic. The Prophet's Song. And I think it was probably written starting in 1974, maybe the year prior to the release of this album. And we'll talk about why the writing of this song happened a year or so before the album's actual release. We are at... 139 beats per minute, but there is some variation here. This is not constant. And the reason for that is because the entire structure of this song transitions and shifts. There's a lot that happens in the middle of it. We are in the time signature of 4-4. We're in common time, but again, a lot of freedom taken with that. And here's where things get really interesting. And remember, this is a Brian song. This is not a Freddie song. And I say that because Freddie is usually the one that goes outside the box when it comes to keys that are packed into a single composition. Freddie is known to use four or five different keys in a song. But here, this is what we're doing with Brian writing this number. We are in D minor, A minor, D major, some G minor some B-flat major, F major, and finally, a little bit of relative C major. So yeah, we're all over the place. This tells a fantastic story inspired by fever dreams that Brian had in 74 when he was suffering from hepatitis. This tells the very intense 
story of a great flood, perhaps the great flood, closely tied to the biblical story of Noah. Very interesting because Brian is agnostic. I want to talk about this a little bit. I love Brian. I I love his personality. He's probably the one I would want to sit down and have a lengthy conversation with more than any of the others. I just love his openness. He's very insightful. He loves to think about the possibilities. And I think this goes with spirituality as well. He has never outright said, I don't believe in this. I don't think this is real. He's always been open to the idea So I love that he, even though he doesn't have perhaps a firm conviction about something, he's still open to this thought and this feeling of something greater than everything and a kind of being spiritually bound sort of a thing. He sings about that in Queen, actually. His song, Long Away, is a great example of that. I love that song. We'll talk about that later. But I find it very fascinating that Brian, of all people, wrote this song, which again, closely ties in with what happens with Noah straight out of the Bible. We have verses of the Bible that almost appear as you would read them in the Bible right in this song. I mean, that's how I hear it. So it's very interesting to me. I just, I I love, I love that he wrote it. And I love that we're so intense in this story employing dominating use of musical canon arrangements and classical influences. These are techniques Brian tends to gravitate toward, as we've seen previously in various guitar solos from Brighton Rock, Seven Seas of Rye, and Liar, which I talked about a little earlier. Brian's epic, The Prophet's Song, is one of Queen's most impressive compositions. Yes, born out of a vivid fever dream in which Brian heard the lyrics and the melodies that I started out with. Ah, people of the earth. The intensity of this number easily eclipses just about every other song before it on a night at the opera. The seriousness and the threat of this song are very affecting. Brian's allusions to, quote, heeding warnings, Beware the storm, discovering the new green bough and returning like the white dove, they strongly echo passages from the Bible. Yet somehow this feels more broad and even worldly, and it doesn't come across solely as a spiritual message. It is frightening. Yes, as lyrics speaking of, quote, the earth will shake and two will break, unquote. And, quote, deceive you not, the fires of hell will take you, end quote. Yes, it's intense. Earlier hard rockers like Great King Rat, which also has some spiritual undertones, actually, have similar aggressive riffs and a sense of urgency. And also like older tracks before it from the band's first two albums, which I love so much for their heaviness. This song employs multiple verses, links, solos that are unique from one to the next and never repeated. 
surrounding that surprising canon, which we'll go into in detail. This varied arrangement keeps this epic song from sounding as long as it is, and the soulful riffs, the powerful drums, the weighty performances command the listener's attention. Freddie may perform the lead vocals, and he does so with incredible ferocity, passion, and strength. But this is all Brian. It's dynamic. It's emotional. It's powerful. From quietly delicate to loudly bold and back again, this song encompasses so many expressions of sound. The more I listen to it, the more I enjoy it. The more I have to go back and experience a part of it over and over again. And I think it's because of how complex this thing is. It is very much fashioned like a much older classical movement of songs, like a symphony. This is not a monotone expression of an emotion. This tells a whole story with many different moods and waves of sound expression. It was played 227 times live from 75 through 78, and it peaked in 77 when they played it 107 times. It went through quite the evolution over the years, too. So in 75 and 76, Queen would play this in all its lengthy glory from pretty much from start to finish with lead-ins of airy percussion symbols, very light. Magical, mystical sounding. Brian playing that ancient sounding intro riff before Freddie sweeps in from seemingly nowhere and sounds very far away (laughs) with the poetic lyrics in the intro. And then with a crash of cymbals and bass, Roger bursts out his falsetto and with stomping, commanding guitars, marking time, we're into the verse. In later performances, after Queen released their album, A Day at the Races in 76, they would combine White Man from that album and the Prophet's song, shifting from one to the next as Freddie magically and passionately performed the vocal delays and layers of harmonies with himself live. So whether it was the earlier performances or the later ones that shortened this number, The sheer power and loudness from the boys is always in absolute full force. It's dreamy. It moves. It implores. John does some really, really nice riffs and switches things up live. This is what I love about the boys. Every single one of them would do something slightly different than what you're expecting from the album version. It's almost more prominent the pounding on John's bass when it's live. And similarly, Roger's drums somehow seem bigger, louder. This song is one of the band's finest examples of sounding so massive on a stage. The key changes live are handled very elegantly. I really want to point that out. And performed with conviction. And when Freddie begins the canon live, it's a crowd pleaser. Of course, Freddie handles the echoes and layers confidently, and his vocal dynamics are impressive. Everything from a whisper of breath in the microphone to loud and pleading screams. 
so much rock and roll in the canon live. We get some surprising improvised vocalizations and an occasional crash of cymbals and snares bursting through. At the Boston 76 show, Freddie busts out some death on two legs during that canon. Very surprising. A nice nod to their other track from this album. And with a screaming man and a flurry of riffs and rolls from Roger on the drums, Brian's guitar growls back in, John's bass holds the line, and we're off into that fantastic guitar solo live. In the later performances, when the guys would combine White Man with this number, Freddie would do some amazing things with harmonizers and or vocoders. This is the same effect the band uses later on another spacey and psychedelic number, which I love and we'll talk about later. This kind of otherworldly futuristic performance is what made Queen so incredible live. And it's the stuff that still sets them apart. So creative, inventive, interesting. Yeah, I, I love it. I love hearing stuff like this, especially live, because it's such a one-off rare thing to get, especially in the rock and roll genre. A little bit more about the vocoder thing. This is something that Daft Punk uses a lot. And it's also something that was a huge in vogue style of vocal manipulation, right? at kind of the early 2000s, it was maybe late 90s. It really started in the R&B genre. And a lot of people did it after the share effect started when she went crazy with autotune in the Believe song that we all know and love, I'm sure. So that, that effect goes way back. So if you were unsure what that was, that's what I'm talking about, where someone sounds completely manipulated and oftentimes there's a harmonic or there's an additional octave of sound added to the person's voice when they're singing live. It's quite a fun effect. Important note from producer Roy Thomas Baker about the Prophet song. He called it one of his favorite songs of all time, period. Roger has mentioned that DJ Kenny Everett, who of course played a massive role with the success of Bo Rap, took an unfinished tape of the Prophet song and started playing it on his show, and Brian was devastated at the time. Obviously, because it wasn't finished, he probably wanted it to be perfect after all these guys were, I'm sure, pretty much perfectionists when it came to their compositions. Brian himself elaborated extensively about his number, talking the making of it, and these are just some of the things he said, quote, and the end of each riff was different, which is a little obsession I have. It was a very queen thing, though. We liked to never repeat ourselves, even in the context of a song, unquote. He also talked the influence of Japan and the riff in the intro and outro that sounds very Japanese. His interest in delays and canon or a fugue. Let's talk about that a little bit. What a canon is. A canon is basically where you have vocals that kind of repeat over each other very much in a choral fashion. So it's a pretty simple structure, but when you 
do things in this kind of arrangement. It allows for a lot of layers of harmonies and such. So that's what we mean when we say a canon, or in this case, he likened it to a fugue, which of course is a very classical term. So his interest in delays and the kind of canon structure, it greatly influenced how this song was developed, especially in the interlude in the canon in the middle. Brian loved working with delays on the guitar, but his idea to take it to the vocal track brought in new experimentation. So what he did is he recorded some snippets himself, took it to Freddie, who liked it, and as they went into the studio, Freddie recorded it with the delay live, singing and harmonizing with himself. It was recorded using two real machines, allowing the layers to create rich chords and vocalizations as Freddie sang with himself and the delays came in one after the other. Regarding the strong spiritual message of the song, Brian's talked about his need to convey connection and coming together and how he wanted to use the inspiration from this dream he had to convey his ideal. He said, quote, a feeling that runs through a lot of the songs I write is that if there is a direction to mankind, it ought to be a coming together. And at the moment, it doesn't seem to be happening very well. I, I wonder about that last statement there. At the, it doesn't seem to be happening very well. What did he mean by that? Is he alluding to his own compositions? Or is he alluding to the fact that the world coming together is not going very well? Because honestly, that statement is very relevant right now. How are we still dealing with this? I don't know. But back to the canon, the delays, Freddie singing this live in the studio. You guys, I have done this. I'm going to mention this several times about singing a canon and delays with yourself. It's hard. You have to really get into the groove. Now, honestly, once you do, it kind of becomes second nature. I don't know how that happens, but somehow as you learn the technology, you almost go on this wavelength, like you're totally dialed in, almost like a machine, and you learn the pattern. You learn by doing but it's still a difficult thing to do, and I wonder how much they had to practice to get that right. So I'm endlessly fascinated that they did this and recorded it live like you hear it on the album. Those impressive delays of harmonies layering and falling over each other that Freddie did. And ultimately, Freddie, Brian, and Roger would end up doing towards the end of the canon together. With the working title, People of the Earth, the Prophet's song, this epic thing, is Queen's longest song at 8 minutes and 17 seconds. I mean, technically, there is actually a track that is longer than that, but it's a little bit, it's a little bit of a unique thing, and we'll talk about that later. This is, in my opinion, as far as songs, actual songs go, this is their longest song. And yeah. The vocal canon in the middle was created using tape recorder delays, and Brian plays the unique toy koto, which he was gifted in Japan in both the intro and outro alongside acoustic guitar. <sighs> I love when Brian or any of the guys contributes multiple instruments like this to a song. It's like they're putting their stamp on it, but it also just impresses me. It impresses me extensively that these guys were so multi-talented in their craft. According to producer Roy Thomas Baker, 
The wind at the beginning is an air conditioner with a phaser on the microphone. And Brian employed drop D tuning on his guitar, which was a rare thing in especially rock music. Typically, the bottom string is an E, but he liked the depth it gave the guitar. He says, quote, a real doomy growl, unquote. So he may not have been the first to do this, but he certainly took the technique to a new and gorgeous level by employing it here. I've heard some hardcore rock fans, heavy rock fans, some of them big queen fans say they hate this, or at least they hate the canon interlude. Some admit they laugh at it. Some say it annoys them. Okay. I get it. I get it. This isn't everybody's cup of tea. There are some people who say, okay, I edited out <laughs> the entire vocal canon just so I could have the hardcore rock and rest of the song. I get it. It's not for everyone. I love it because I'm a big fan of choral music and, and certain operas and I love Carmina Burana. And it's, you know, I just, I love stuff like that. That's super powerful. And it, it's done entirely with the voice. But I can understand coming from a pretty hardcore rock band. I mean, these guys had some of the heaviest rock you're going to hear on albums like Queen 2. So for them to come out with something like this, I get it. But this is also the same band that brings you the previous Seaside Rendezvous. You know, this is Freddie Mercury. There's almost no one else in the rock genre I can think of off the top of my head that would lean so sometimes very charmingly campy or flamboyant or dramatic in their compositions and honestly be able to totally and confidently and fantastically get away with it. I digress a little bit, <laughs> but it's interesting to me the very, very strong contrast of opinions from one Queen fan to the next about this song because some people like me call it a masterpiece and other people think it, it's just such a break in style and such an odd thing for the boys that it simply doesn't work. In fact, I've, I've seen some people say they don't think it should be on the album at all. And, and I'm, I'm just blown away. It, it's a very strong statement. It's a very strong opinion. But again, Everybody's got theirs. So I'm just, I'm fascinated by that. That's all. On the other side of the coin, all music called this as fascinating as Bohemian Rhapsody and one of Queen's finest studio achievements. Rolling Stone even liked it, giving particular praise to Brian's guitar arrangement alongside Freddie's powerful lead vocals. Fans who love this song, me included, insist it must be listened to on headphones. This cannot, should not be heard without headphones. At least once, you have got to put this on a good set of headphones and just turn the lights off and listen to this. Any good song needs to be heard with headphones, period. That's my mantra. Never, ever, ever just listen to something in the car or on your speakers at home. You have got to listen to me. You cannot experience music without a good set of headphones. Just do it. Just get some awesome bear dynamics. <laughs> okay, maybe not bears, but I mean, for a while, everybody was buying, what was what were they buying? The Beats? Are those even still a thing? I don't know. I never had them. I never got them because I kind of, I waved them off as a fad and I didn't know if they were actually any good. Were they? But anyway, whatever it is, even 
it, it doesn't even have to be an expensive set of headphones. Just get a great set of headphones. Listen to this. You will be, I think you'll far more appreciate if you don't already, if you really don't care for the Canon section, I think you will love the way it sounds on a set of headphones. You'll just have a new appreciation for it. That's my opinion. And the song is brilliant. It's even more brilliant. On a, on a good set of headphones, it's like a total different world. It's this atmosphere, the air, the delicate guitar, acoustic guitar, that toy koto, such a genius sound. And that arrangement in that Japanese pentaton scale. This entire song is another moment where I wonder, were the arrangements made consciously, strategically? Did Brian know he was going to make the key changes, the many surprising chord transitions and the accidentals? Or did it just feel right to do so? This feels classical, folk, old, like it existed forever, deep and yes, spiritual. Not overwhelmingly so, but definitely spiritual. When the vocals come in soft and pleading, it's magical, incredibly affecting. The guitar layers, my goodness, all around and everywhere, rich with feeling in this performance. That lyric in the beginning, beware the storm that gathers here. I love that. It's one of my very favorite moments, not just in the song, but just in general. Something about that phrase and the chord changes, the way the vocals sound, the tonal quality of the performance there, it feels so classic. And then that crash, the pounding, the warning, a moment where the lyrics and music are perfect companions. Brian's affinity for moving and thoughtful composition is so refined. Phrases with Dorian modals and suspended chords that enhance the drama and the complexity. When we move from verse into chorus, if that's really a chorus, the drums burst forth with crashes, rolls, and so much power. There's that word again, power. It's all through this. There are tension created counterpoint arrangements of lead vocals contrasted with guitars. And those harmony vocals, ah, yes, the boys fully rounded out. When we fall into a somewhat predictable verse again, there's more intensity. These lyrics, ah, these kings of beasts now counting their days, and then one of the best, the earth will shake and two will break and death all around will be your dowry. Wow. Another round of chorus, but the chord shifts at the end with such tension and richness. Again, occasionally brief changes in meter. We have 5-4, some 2-4, transition into the bridge sections. And we're not even halfway through. And this is already obviously one of the boys' best things ever. Those drums, the lyrics, flee for your life. With the key change to D major, there's an enthusiasm behind that intensity. Then, the canon. We shift into it as the instruments all drop out. Something we never expect from Queen, but especially from Freddie, this isn't really all that surprising. And he nails it. Enjoys it, if I had to guess. There are so many shifts in key, improvised notes. Everything is so layered and phrased incredibly well. 
How many takes did this take? Or is Freddy just that good? I've messed around with these echo delays before so many times, and sometimes you're just that lucky when things perfectly layer like this. The tempo is consistent, but entrances of vocals are totally unpredictable within the arrangement we would expect. And the law laws. I want to talk about the law laws. There's this part where the guys all come in. I love that moment where we get more vocals from Brian and Roger as well as Freddie. It feels very classical, renaissance, old again, like something we'd hear in an old cathedral. It's back and forth. La, 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 la. And it just goes around you in this circle. Into the left and the right we go. On the headphones, this is glorious. The way those lyrics transition over each other. I, you, and come here. It sounds like come, I hear you. Absolutely fantastic genius, but they bounce from speaker to speaker from side to side. It's flawless. And when that crash comes back in, the hard rock is back. Brian indulges in deep and heavy lumbering chords and riffs, distorted power chords, many guitars, carefully balanced. Even Brian said he had to restrain himself to prevent muddying the sound. There is a moment where harmonies are based in E minor and A chords while rhythm guitars are in E minor and A minor. And all I can say is that's bold. It's bold and it works. And that wind-up effect, there's a part where the entire track kind of goes, and they essentially took a finished portion of the track and played it through the reel from a dead stop, starting it up, recording the sound as it went. Simple, genius, totally effective. With Roger's lead in drums in that moment, it's a beautiful effect and quite simple when you think about it. We hear Brian's guitars again echoing earlier chords with more weight, depth, octaves, and intensity, but it's still different and more interesting. (sighs) Guys, these lyrics. God give you the grace to purge this place and peace all around may be your fortune. Symbols, loud singing. It's almost screaming, but it's controlled. The guitar cycles and cycles through arpeggios and with a massive crash... We fall into the outro that strongly echoes the intro. This is so timeless and beautiful and surprisingly tender as it ends. It's terribly serious. One of Queen's more serious songs, actually, and they do it incredibly well. This is a rare moment in Queen's catalog where there's not a whole lot of joy here. There's glimpses of the silver lining. That's a very big thing in Brian's world as a composer and as a writer. That's why I call him Moody May. But this is very, very dark. And I I think it does capture the fear that Brian felt. He talked about the dream he had that inspired this, where people were reaching for each other and they couldn't get to each other. But as an encouragement to try to get there, he wrote this song with this story. And again, yes, it echoes the spiritual biblical stories of Noah, among other stories from other times and other places. So I love that he went there, and I think he captured that emotion and probably the fear he was feeling very, very well. 
This is threatening in a different way. It's not like death on two legs, which is very angry. This is very, very serious and implores you, demands, commands you almost, flee for your life. It's, it's so serious. I love it though. I love the intensity and it just proves that the guys can do anything. Look at what they just did, Seaside Rendezvous. That is nothing like this, nothing like it. But Freddie sings lead in both. Yes, Freddie wrote Seaside Rendezvous. Brian wrote this. But Freddie can sing anything. The guys can play anything. And they sound brilliant when they do it. That's the prophet song, guys. You got to go listen to it because I have a feeling a lot of what I said was probably very confusing unless you just listen to it. The canon part especially. It's kind of amazing. It's impressive. Honestly, if you just think about the technique and the focus and the intention it would take to do this, it's very eye-opening. It's very impressive, and I think you'll have a whole new appreciation for it. Ladies and gents, that is the Prophet song. I'm so excited I finally got to this. I'm sorry I was away. I'm glad to be back. I hope you enjoy this. And, and please check out some of the live performances because they're so different from the mid-70s to you know the later 70s there when they started to throw white man in with the Prophet song. That's a great pair up, by the way. I've always thought those two work so well together, those songs. And I love White Man too. We'll talk about that when we get to a day at the races. But until next time, keep yourselves alive. I will be back again in the not too distant future this time with another Queen Deep Dive. I'm very excited to be going through site two of A Night at the Opera. I'm really, really scared, but <laughs> we're gonna get to bow wrap and I will survive. I will survive and we will have fun. I'm looking forward to it, actually. I'm really looking forward to breaking that one down because there's so much to say about it. There's so much to discuss and brainstorm and all that jazz. I'll be back again next time, guys.